Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, y'all. How are we doing? It is good to be with you this morning. As the video said, I'm Brett. I'm our student pastor here, and I am excited to be preaching the word to you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be continuing in the series that we've been going through for the past five weeks at Mercy. It's called Before All Things. We're going through the book of Colossians together, and we're talking about how Jesus is not someone who we as Christians just tack on to our lives and continue to live however we want. No, Jesus is worthy of our entire lives. Uh, Colossians 1.17 says he comes before all things, and he's to have first place in our lives. And so in our text today... We're going to continue with that theme. We're going to see that as believers, Christ is to have first place in our relationships with others, specifically in our church, in our homes, and in our workplace. Now, I want to say up front, you need to put your seatbelt on this morning because this is kind of a hot topic sermon. We're going to be talking about submission, we're going to talk about parenting, and we're going to talk about slavery, okay? Now, as the student pastor here and the parent of a 17-month-old, I am a skilled expert in all of these things. So lock in. It's going to be great. Um, But y'all, there's a verse right in the middle of our text today that summarizes the main idea of our passage well. It's Colossians 3.17, and it says, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen? Whatever you do in word or in deed, Christ is to have first place. In other words, church, and this is the main point of the sermon today, Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Super simple concept, nothing fancy about it. But what we're going to see is that the call for every Christian is to live their lives for Jesus. He is to have first place. As we've seen throughout this series, the way the Apostle Paul, who's the writer of Colossians, kind of makes his case in each of the uh, chapters is he kind of has a logical progression of thought. So he starts somewhere and then he builds that thought out. And today we're going to see him build out this idea that if we're going to live for Jesus, then the starting place for every single one of us is in the heart. Kind of reminds me of the movie The Grinch. Raise your hand if you've seen it. The Grinch, best, maybe the best Christmas movie of all time, better than Christmas Vacation for sure, and it is the uh, 2000 version with Jim Carrey, that is the best one, but y'all, you know the story. The Grinch is a mean old man or whatever he is, and uh, his aim is he wants, to, he wants to steal Christmas, he hates Christmas, and what's at the root of it is that his heart was two sizes too small. And so he steals all of the presents from Whoville. He takes them up to the top of Mount Crumpet. He's going to dump them off and ruin Christmas for everybody. And then he hears a song coming up into his ears. It's Christmas songs being sung by the residents of Whoville. They didn't have their Christmas spirit stolen from them. And all of a sudden, something starts to happen. His heart starts changing. He falls on the ground. He's writhing in pain. He says, I'm feeling all of a sudden. And his heart in that moment grows three sizes. Y'all know that story? 
the Grinch's heart changed. And then his life changed after he ends up returning all of the presents and the rest is history. His heart needed to change for his life to change. And y'all, that is no different in the Christian life. The heart is the center of living for the Christian life. One theologian explains it like this, just as the engine powers the vehicle, so the heart drives all that we do. The heart is the motivation headquarters, the central animating core of all our longings and our fears and our actions. Y'all, just like the Christmas songs came up and changed the heart of the Grinch, if you're gonna live for Jesus in the church, the home, and the workplace, you're gonna have to first have hearts that have been changed by the gospel. So let's talk about what that looks like. There's four points to our sermon today. Having your heart changed by the gospel, living for uh, Christ in the church, in the home, and in the workplace. Sound good? Yeah, All right, here's point number one. If you're gonna live for Jesus, your heart has to first be changed by the gospel. Beginning in Colossians 3.12, here's what our text says. It says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. All right, let's stop right there before we go on any further. Paul starts with words that get right to the heart of the gospel and to the identity of those who have had their hearts changed by it. He writes, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Y'all, we cannot miss this. These are words that we need to dwell on every single day as believers, and they should never get old to us. They reveal the mystery of the gospel message, which is that since the very first moment that we could choose between obedience to God and denying him, we chose to deny him. But God in his mercy and grace towards us chose us despite our rebellion. He made us his sons and daughters who he now calls holy and dearly loved. That is crazy. I've been reading this book about uh, the cross-centered life And there's this illustration that really stuck out to me this past week, and I think it kind of sheds light on the absurdity of this idea of God choosing us. In one of the chapters, the writer asked the question, uh, talking about the account of um, the cross of Christ, and he says, who do you relate to in the story of Jesus going to the cross? Maybe you relate to Peter, who had just denied Jesus three times. Maybe you relate to Mary, who sat there and watched her son suffer unimaginable pain, Who do you relate to? The writer goes on to say, let me tell you who I relate to. I relate to the angry mob screaming, crucify him. He writes, that's who we all should identify with. Because apart from God's grace, this is where we'd all be standing and we're only flattering ourselves to think otherwise. Y'all, the gospel message is that we were the ones spitting out curses to the son of God as he went to the cross. And because of that, what we deserve is eternal separation from God. And yet, yet, Jesus looked down on us from the cross with compassion in his voice. And he said, I choose you. I choose you. I love you. I'm going to die for you. He went to the cross in our place. He died for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the grave and defeated sin and death. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, then today your identity is a chosen, dearly loved son or daughter of God. And it's only when we understand this identity that our hearts will change to want to live for Jesus because we recognize we deserve nothing, but Jesus has given us everything. Paul continues in our text, verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. 
Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. You may recognize this language of put on from last week's sermon. Pastor Spence talked about how when you have believed in the gospel, you've been raised with Christ. That's Colossians 3.1. And you've been given this new identity as a child of God. The old sinful self has died and you've been made new. You have a clean slate. And now the call is to put off that old self and to put on the new self, which is a life of obedience to Christ. You have to, he kind of mentioned it like it was like a pair of Jordans. Y'all remember him talking about the pair of Jordans? The fashion sneakers, you got to learn how to put them on and walk in them. Y'all, the good news is that these Jordans, these proverbial Jordans, they've been provided for you through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Every single one of these virtues that we just read about was perfectly modeled to us by Jesus, and they've now been given to us through his spirit who is living inside of us. You just have to be willing to put them on. He's provided compassion for you so you can put on compassion. He's provided kindness for you so you can put on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. Jesus has provided all of these for us and he's done it all when we didn't deserve a single bit of it. We deserved wrath, condemnation, and judgment, but instead we received mercy. And y'all, that, that recognition is what will change your heart like it did the Grinch. That is the engine behind a life lived for Jesus. Your heart has to be changed by the gospel. And when it is, these virtues will overflow in your life and they'll spill into your relationships with others. Look at verse 15. What comes with a heart that's been changed by the gospel is peace and thankfulness. A peace that surpasses all understanding and a thankfulness that you've been counted worthy to be a child of God. If you're gonna live for Jesus, you have to have a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Let's keep moving. The next thing we see in our passage is what it looks like to live for Jesus in the church. Live for Jesus in the church. This is what verse 16 says. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, with, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Y'all, this is really cool because it's like all of a sudden Paul kind of opens the doors of the early church and we get to take a glimpse inside. And there's a couple of things that immediately stand out. The first thing we see is that the word of Christ is central to the church's worship. He writes, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. So notice here that the primary focus for the church on a Sunday morning isn't the relatability of the preacher, It's not the type of music that's being played. It's not the extravagance of the worship center or the stained glass. It's the message that's being proclaimed. And if we're going to live for Jesus in the church, then the word of God among us must be the top priority. That's why at Mercy, we say one of our core values is we keep the gospel at the center. So anytime you come to Mercy, we're going to make sure of two things. First is that you're going to hear the Bible being preached. And second is that the gospel is going to be clear. This is the duty of any faithful church that's living for Jesus. And so a question that I have for you this morning is, are you coming to church this morning with a joy and anticipation from hearing God's word, or are you concerned with secondary things in your heart? You may have heard this colloquialism, but are you more concerned with the color of the carpet, or in our case, the color of the concrete floor? Or are you more concerned if the word of God is going to be preached, which actually has the power to nourish you and to grow you to maturity in Christ? 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the process of looking for a church. I encourage you, like we would love for mercy to be your home, but as you continue to look, look for a church that faithfully preaches the word of God. This is a distinguishing mark of a church that's living for Jesus. The next thing we see from Paul is that he writes that living for Jesus in the church means every person plays a role. He writes that the church is to teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Y'all, there's action on the part of all the people. If we're going to live for Jesus in the church, then we can't have a come to church and be fed for the weak mentality, which is so common in our culture today. We have to have a come and serve mentality. As we see in this text, all of the people, not just the pastor, they were to teach one another and admonish one another. In this specific context, they were to do that through their corporate worship, through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And y'all, I just, I experienced this last week. I was at Northeast, our Northeast campus, and we're singing this song, King of Kings. And these lyrics, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. I'm sitting there, I'm one of the pastors here, and I was struggling to worship the Lord. And all of a sudden, I look to my right, and there's this, this couple who, they're just worshiping with everything they have inside of them singing in their hearts with gratitude to God. And in my mind, I'm like, man, they're coming from their hard week. They're going through a lot of stuff and they're worshiping the Lord in a way that's making me want to worship the Lord. Y'all, that is what we have been called to as the church. That's what you have been called to. And it is so beautiful when we walk it out. I just experienced that right before I got up here, watching some of y'all praise Jesus and it makes me want to worship him more. This is a picture of what living for Jesus in the church looks like. Everyone plays a role. Everyone comes and says, I'm here for God and his people, rather than saying, I'm here for me. Paul goes on to write, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So church, would we be a place where we strive together to put Christ before our words and deeds? Would we be a place where we're thankful to God for the opportunity to even do so? Amen? Amen. This is what living for Jesus in the church looks like. The next thing that we're going to see is what it looks like to live for Jesus in your home. Live for Jesus in your home. In verse 18, Paul writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Four big things that we see here in this text. Wives, husbands, children, parents. Paul begins with wives by instructing them, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. All right, so this is one of those hot button topics. Y'all, right from the jump, I want to acknowledge that this word submission has been misused and abused so many times in and around the church. And it's likely that as some of you hear it, you cringe a little bit and you have good reason to do so. But y'all listen, whether you are married or not, whether you're a man or a woman, I want to tell you a simple truth about biblical submission. It's this, God has ordered the world for everyone to submit to someone and God's order for the world is good. God has ordered the world for everyone to submit to someone, and God's order for the world is good. So let's flesh this out just for a second. This word submission is the Greek word hupotasso. So I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not a Greek scholar here. But it's a military term meaning to rank under or to subject oneself to someone else. And we see throughout the scriptures that in God's infinite wisdom, he saw fit that it would be good and right for every person to have to submit to someone. 
There's a few places in scripture where we see this, but it results in flourishing societies. It results in flourishing churches. It results in flourishing homes and it results in flourishing individual lives. And so we see in Hebrews 13 that men and women are called to submit to the leadership of the church. Uh, we see in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, that men and women are called to submit to governing authorities. That leads to flourishing societies. We see in James 4 that men and women are all called to submit to God. This is the call of every single human life, that we are to submit ourselves to the Lord. And y'all, it's important to note that this word submission has nothing to do with dignity or value before God. As Christians, we believe that men and women have equal dignity and value before the Lord. Both of them have been created in the image of God. Both play an indispensable role in building up the home and the church. And God intends to use both men and women to advance his gospel in our world. He has and always will do that. And when this word submission is used to try and strip away dignity from women, y'all, it's both terrible shepherding and it robs God of his good design that he's created for the world. And it's only when there's this understanding that submission is not just for wives, but it's for everyone, that this order created by God can be seen for what it is, which is beautiful and right and good. And it leads to flourishing. And we see in our text today that one of the spaces where God saw fit to have biblical submission was in the home. Ephesians 5.32 tells us that marriage is a wonderful mystery that points us to Christ in the church. And within biblical marriage, the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And so, just as the church submits to and follows the leadership of Jesus, wives are to submit to and follow the leadership of their husbands. And in so doing, they paint a profound picture of the gospel. It's a profound picture of the gospel because it shows a love and trust for God and for his purposes so much that we're willing to lay down our lives and pick up his because his purposes are greater than ours and because he loves us even more than we can love ourselves. Biblical submission in the home puts the gospel on display and it leads to the flourishing of both wives and husbands. Now, one thing I need to say, I'd be remiss to not say it, is that Paul writes in, in verse eight, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There are times, y'all, where uh, submission is simply not fitting to the Lord. Specifically, I'm thinking of instances such as abuse or neglect. And y'all, I just want to say from the stage, if this is happening in any sort of way, the number one priority needs to be for you to get safe. Y'all, we love you as a church and are ready to help you. There will be people around, both pastors and female staff members, like we are ready to talk to you if you need to work through that. And if you're not ready, my encouragement is just tell someone. God has created you in his image and what is fitting for the Lord, in the Lord is for you to be treated as such. You do not have to be submitting to an abuser. Paul continues in verse 19, he says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. So husbands, you remember what we just talked about in Ephesians 5? Your marriage represents Christ and the church, and you have been given the responsibility to love your wife as Christ loved the church. I've heard Pastor Spence describe it this way, you may wear a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. Christ gave up his very life for the church, and so the call for you is to give up your very life for your bride. Her heart, the number one priority of your life, besides your walk with Jesus her needs above your own. This is gonna mean rejecting passivity 
accepting responsibility, leading courageously, and investing eternally into her. And husbands and wives, for both of you, this is no small calling. Like, this is weighty. But I promise you that if you fight to live for Jesus in your home, it is one of the strongest gospel witnesses to a lost and dying world. I've seen on multiple occasions couples who want nothing to do with God or the church see a healthy couple that's centered on the gospel and say, I don't know what it is, but I want whatever they have. I want that. Y'all, it is a powerful testimony. And so let's live for Jesus in the home. Paul continues in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. This speaks to both children and parents. So first, children, listen up. I'm speaking to middle schoolers and high schoolers primarily because y'all are some of the youngest people in the room. I hear a couple babies in here, but that's beside the point. Listen to this. You have been called by God to obey your parents or the guardians that he has placed over you. If you are listening to this sermon right now, (laughs) amen. (laughs) I love it. If you're listening to this sermon right now, then you probably have at least one parent or guardian who's doing everything they can to love you and to point you to Christ. And when you disobey them, unless they're calling you to do something that directly opposes the Lord, you're not only disobeying them, but you're disobeying God. My challenge for you is to be thankful for them. Make it a point today to tell them, I'm thankful for you and obey what they're asking you to do. This is what living for Jesus in the home looks like for you. And y'all, it's not easy, I know that, but it's God's command for us. To parents, this passage also points to the fact that there's a responsibility for us to raise our children in the ways of God. Deuteronomy 6 talks all about this. So as their call is to obey us, we should be making sure that we're pointing them to Christ and training them to see that their ultimate aim is not obedience to us, it's obedience to him. Fathers, the text goes on to talk to you, part of this is not exasperating your children. That word exasperate means to cause irritation or annoyance to. I wonder if Paul said fathers instead of fathers and mothers because mothers are better at this than fathers. (laughs) Y'all, we have a high calling as fathers to love our kids, to shepherd them, to pour into them. And so, y'all, there is so much weight and gravity in being a father and um, clearly the Lord takes it so seriously. And so I encourage you, y'all, Don't exasperate your children. Love them. I can tell you as a father of a 17-month-old, I understand why Paul put this right here. Because, y'all, it's hard. I mean, you should have seen me writing this sermon this past week. I'm sitting there typing away, type, type, type. All of a sudden, I feel a tug on my leg. Up, up, up. I'm like, all right. Okay, start typing away. Down, down, down. I'm like, it's hard. And my natural disposition in my flesh is to, to want to exasperate my daughter if she's acting up. And y'all, the longer I work in student ministry, the more that I realize it's even harder with raising teenagers. I was just talking with a parent this past week, and she said to me, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my entire life is raising a teenager. Y'all, that's a real sentiment. So if you're in the throes of parenting right now, I want to give you two encouragements. First, We have a student ministry here. We would love to partner with you as you are parenting. So get them plugged in. I would love to be your friend. Uh, Second thing is remember your identity in Christ. Remember that you are God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved. And because you have received mercy from God, you can extend mercy to your kids. Because 
Christ has loved you and has been compassionate to you when you least deserved it. You can love your kid and be compassionate to them when they least deserve it. Y'all, this is hard and we need the Lord to help us. But may we strive together to live for Jesus in the home. Jesus is worthy of this and it's for our good when we do it. The last thing we see from Paul is what it means to live for Jesus in the workplace. Heads up, got another hot button topic coming right here. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. All right, so obviously we look at this passage and our word is drawn to the word slave. Um, what in the world is going on? Why is Paul saying this? Pastor Schmidt spoke about this uh, recently in our series on Ephesians because it's uh, referred to in that book as well. But this relationship between slave and master is so far from what you and I think of when we think of those terms. The Bible uh, deems the chattel slavery that existed in America as something as wickedness, period. It is wicked. And in this case, in the Bible, this was more like indentured servitude. So it was where someone would voluntarily sell themselves into service in order to work off a debt that they owed. It was a socioeconomic reality of this time, and given that Paul includes this in his letter, it's likely that there were both slaves and masters in the congregation of the Colossian church. The closest thing that we have today in relation to this would be the workplace, where we are working under someone, or in terms of the master to the slave, where we have people working under us. And there's a few things that we need to take note of. First, we see a command for the worker who's working under someone. So this applies to anyone in the room who has a boss. Paul says, don't work only while being watched, verse 22, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. So just a question for the room, is this how you see your work? Do you work the same way while no one is looking versus if your boss were right there watching you? I think most of us, if we're being honest, would say no to this. Like this is a reality check for all of us, including myself. But y'all, how we work when no one is looking is a direct representation of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. And in a world where evangelism is often prohibited at work, one of the ways that you and I can bear witness to our coworkers that we're followers of Jesus is by working hard for the glory of God. Going back to Colossians 3.17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all things in the name of Jesus. Maybe you work from home, so you're like, bearing witness with how I work doesn't really matter. That's a fair point, and that's the world we live in today. But look at what this text says, verse 23. It says, do your work as something for the Lord and not for people. This goes back to a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Y'all, if you know what God has done for you to make you his son or daughter, then it's out of a response for him that even in the mundane, menial tasks that maybe nobody sees, that you choose to work hard for his glory. You're working for the Lord who has saved you. And the text tells us that there's a reward and an inheritance for those who treat their jobs as such. The text also speaks to those who, are wor- who have people working under them. Paul writes in uh, Colossians 4.1, deal with them justly and fairly since you too have a master in heaven. So bosses, supervisors, business executives, as you read this passage, does this define how you treat those who work under you? 
who report to you? Do you rule equally, justly, and fairly as the Lord would have? Or do you show partiality? Do you lead as someone who thinks that they're actually the ones in charge? Y'all, this passage reminds us that no matter if we are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or if we're the low man on the totem pole, we're not the ones in charge. God is. And we're under his rule and reign. And one day, Philippians tells us, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so our call is to recognize that and to work in light of that truth. Y'all, your workplace is a mission field. And there are likely so many people in your company, I know you're probably even thinking of them right now, who don't know Jesus and God has given instruction on how we can take steps towards seeing them come to know him. Work hard for his glory. Remember who you are ultimately serving. Live for Jesus in your workplace and watch what God will do. Jesus is worthy of it. Y'all, all all of this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, the heart. Has your heart been changed by the gospel? What's your identity? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you can rest assured that you are God's chosen and beloved son or daughter. And despite your sin, despite your rebellion, he chose you and has promised the gift of eternal life. And it's only out of that identity that we're going to be able to live for Jesus in the relationships of our lives. If we try to do it in our own strength, it's going to be a drudgery. But if we have that identity in Christ, those things will become a joy to us as we say, God, I'm just going to serve you faithfully in the spaces where you've called. So church, where is your heart this morning? Have you been operating in your own strength? The call that I want to give you is to remember what Christ has done for you. Put on that new self this week. Walk in confidence as a child of God. Live for Jesus in your relationships. Maybe you're here today and you can't confidently say that your identity is in Christ. I want you to know that there's an invitation for you to come to know him today. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and he's been raised three days later. And his word tells us that if you would turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ, he will save you, forgive you of your sins and adopt you into his family as a, as a son or a daughter. Y'all, I wanna invite you to do that today. There is nothing better than being a son or daughter of of Christ Jesus. And if you're ready to do that, all you have to say to him is, Jesus, I believe in you, and I'm ready to turn from my sin and follow you this morning. I urge you to do that. Church, may we be a people who live for Jesus in our church, in our homes, and in our workplace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, which is able to nourish us, to satisfy our souls, to make us look more like you. God, we thank you that um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if there's anybody in this room right now who has placed their faith in you, that their sin has been completely wiped clean. And Lord, um, the call for them today is just to put on that new self that you've given them. So God, I pray that they would, that this week together, we would put on the new self. Lord, that we would look more like Christ this week because you deserve it. And I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would see this invitation as you were hanging there on the cross, looking down at them, saying, I choose you. I'm doing this for you to cover your sin so that you can have life. 
Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here who wants to follow you this morning, that they would make that decision. They would turn and they would follow you. Jesus, you are worthy and we love you. Would we live for you? In Christ's name, amen. Amen, church.